Please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we have been and where we will be for uh, a while longer as we continue to consider the Beatitudes. As you're turning there, um, I, was, I was thinking of an illustration this week. One of my daughters, I think it was Emma Kate, found a jacket in the closet in the deep dark corner of our coat closet. She found this uh, old coat of mine. And she said, Daddy, what's that football jacket doing in there? And what she's talking about is my old Letterman jacket, all right? And uh, this was from Hardin-Simmons University. I'm not going to put it on because I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, this is my old Letterman jacket. And I got to thinking about the, my soccer team, and I was preparing the sermon when she had mentioned that she saw my coat, and I was, my thoughts began to drift. And I began to think of one of my coaches, a coach by the name of Mario Carrillo. And Mario was a really good soccer player, and he was uh, our assistant coach on the team, and he was an extremely passionate guy. Uh, now, our other coach was just sort of kind of mellow, but Mario is the one who got us all fired up. And I remember uh, Mario telling us at, at halftime of one game, we were winning. Now, we didn't normally win, so this was an, uh, an unusual thing. We were winning. We, were, we weren't a very good soccer team. And we were winning by a whole lot. And near the end of the half, I think we were winning like seven to nothing or something. We were playing, a, I, know that, I remember the team we were playing, Louis, uh, University of Louisiana Monroe. Uh, Louisiana. We were playing them, and uh, we were up seven to nothing or something, and we'd gotten really sloppy near the end of that half, because um, guys were just kind of playing around now, just kind of laughing. They weren't even taking the game seriously because we were winning by so much, and Mario at halftime jumped down our throat, and I remember what he said. He says, show no mercy. Like, okay, Mario, yeah, man, we're winning seven nothing. And, and he could tell some of the guys were reacting like that. And he said, show no mercy. And then he kind of related back to our own experience. Because like I said, we weren't a very good team. We lost to Midwestern State, which is out in Wichita, Texas, um, I think 12 to nothing earlier that year. He said, aren't you tired of being humiliated? Now it's your turn to humiliate someone else. We're like, okay. Now, he motivated us. I mean, we went out and we, I think we won the game like 14 to nothing. But I'll never forget that. And as I was thinking about the sermon this week, I thought about how that's what the world preaches, isn't it? Show no mercy. Now, we may couch it in nicer words than that. But you get what's yours. Show no mercy. Make it to the top. Matter of fact, Mario wanted us to get even with the world, didn't he? Aren't you tired of being humiliated? Now it's your turn to humiliate someone else. And I thought about how polar opposite that mentality is to what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude we're going to look at today. We're specifically going to focus on Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, which is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But as we've done all through the study of the Beatitudes, we're going to read them all here in a second. So we'll begin in verse 2 in just a minute. Now we are in the middle of a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, where we are walking through the life of Jesus chronologically, and we're doing this by going verse by verse through all four of the Gospels. And, and now we are in the middle of, or we are at the beginning of, what's probably the, the most well-known discourse that Jesus ever gave, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now the context for this sermon is that Jesus is in his second wave of Galilean ministry. He's been proclaiming that the the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore people are to repent, that's to turn from their sin, 
and they are to believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the God-man, has come to save his people. Now, Jesus' ministry has drawn very large crowds, and he's quite popular with these crowds at this time in his ministry. But the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and all the priests, and all the different parties that are involved in the Jewish leadership, not a single one of them like him, not one bit. Matter of fact, they're already conspiring behind the scenes to get rid of Jesus at this point in his ministry. Now, right before this sermon, Jesus had chosen 12 men out of his larger group of disciples to be his apostles. These were to be his sent out ones, ones who would be very much an extension of his ministry. That's why some people even view this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as an ordination sermon. I don't know if you realize that or not, but there's a lot of scholars who view this when it says that Jesus, that the disciples came and sat at Jesus' feet. His primary audience, even, even more than just the disciples, was the apostles. And this is, serves as sort of an ordination sermon. I don't know if that's the case, but we do know this, that after choosing the twelve, he goes up on the mountain and his disciples come to him. He creates separation from the crowd. His disciples come to him. He sits down to teach them But then there's also a a larger crowd that is gathered around to listen. But the sermon is for the disciples. It's for the followers of Jesus. It's for the citizens of the kingdom of God. So I've kind of summarized it this way in the past, and I'll say it again. This is King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. And Jesus begins this kingdom manifesto with eight blessings that are better known as the Beatitudes. He starts each one with the words, blessed are the, which essentially means happy are the, which is not to be misunderstood as the superficial happiness that the world offers, but a deep contentedness of the soul that doesn't ebb and flow with changing circumstances. The world needs external things to make it happy. People will say, you know, this makes me happy, whether it be possessions or people or circumstances or experiences. This makes me happy. I heard someone giving the illustration or listened to another sermon on this text. Is that they saw someone walking out of, a, I think, a Lowe's or something, and they had a, a plant, and, and they were smiling, and they said, oh, that's a pretty plant you have there. And the, and the person said, yeah, this makes me happy. That's the world's view of happiness. It's something external we need to happen to us to make us happy. But kingdom citizens don't need anything to make them happy, an external force. Kingdom citizens are happy. It's an internal reality. It's an internal supernatural happiness generated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the blessedness that enabled famous saints, even guys like Horatio Spafford, who who wrote, It is well with my soul. It was that blessedness that enabled him to write, It is well with my soul, as he's traveling over the very spot where his daughters had died in a maritime accident. That's the type of happiness Jesus speaks of here. So with that, I want us to stand now as we get ready to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And we read uh, this. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. And as we read this, this is God's infallible, inerrant word spoken to us. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would graciously, through the work of your Holy Spirit, uh, allow this word of yours to function like a surgeon's scalpel, to dig into the depths of our heart, to convict us of our sin. And then as that scalpel is removed, it brings great healing as well. And so I pray, Father, that you would Um, speak to our hearts, open up our hearts and our minds. Grant me the grace to speak your word clearly, uh, strike any error from this message. And so, Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to remind you this morning that these um, Beatitudes are traits that should mark those who have already become kingdom citizens. They are birthmarks, if you will, of those who've been born again. That's why the first and last promises, which are attached to the first and last Beatitudes, proclaim this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And thus all the other promises attached to all the other Beatitudes are guaranteed for those who truly are followers of Jesus, those who are in the kingdom, those who are Christians. Now I also remind you that Jesus isn't just speaking random thoughts here. He isn't just speaking haphazardly. Jesus never spoke haphazardly. Every word that came from his mouth was perfectly measured. There's a logical pattern here to the Beatitudes. I mentioned this 3-1-3-1 pattern, and I just say it again to remind you, and there's some perhaps who haven't heard the previous sermons on the Beatitudes. The first three Beatitudes are about emptying ourselves of ourselves. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness. This is about emptying ourselves. Now the fourth Beatitude is then about being filled with righteousness. We hunger and thirst for righteousness and we are satisfied. We're filled with righteousness. And thus the next three are the overflow of that righteousness. Mercy, purity, uh, purity of heart, I mean, and peacemaking. And then the final one is how the world reacts to someone who's filled with righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So today we come to this fifth beatitude, which is the first of the filling beatitudes, if you will, if you use that pattern that I've repeated. The the filling beatitudes, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the first thing I want to do this morning is to let us simply ask, what is mercy? And it's distinctly a biblical concept, and it's not easy to define. There are many synonyms and descriptors that one could assign to the word mercy. But here's how I want to define it today. And I believe this is a biblical definition of mercy. Mercy is a holy compassion that compels us to real action in order to relieve another's misery. Mercy is a holy compassion that compels us to real action in order to relieve another's misery. It's a holy, supernatural work of God in our soul to stir up pity in us. It compels us toward selfless service, toward heartfelt charity, toward a spirit of forbearance and forgiveness. It is very much the natural outcome of a meek heart. I think it's very closely tied to meekness, matter of fact. 
The heart that is emptied in those first Beatitudes, and the heart that's meek and it's empty with meekness, is then filled with mercy. Remember Abram? Abram shows meekness as Lot selfishly chooses the better land and, and sort of mistreats Abram in the process. And later Abram shows mercy as he musters a band of fighters to go and rescue Lot. After he and his family have been captured, he could have easily said, that's what you get, Lot. You decided to choose that plot of land. You decided to pitch your tent towards Sodom. You get what comes to you. You get what you deserve. But no, he shows mercy and goes and saves his nephew Lot. And then there's Moses, and we mentioned this in the sermon on meekness, how Moses shows meekness as Miriam and Aaron question his authority. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't try to defend himself. Instead, he lets God be his defender. And after that, God strikes Miriam with leprosy. And Moses shows mercy as he pleads for God, pleads to God to spare her. So meekness generates mercy. Or you can look at the life of Joseph, who showed meekness all throughout his trials and his tribulations. And all these that were initially put into motion by his brothers. And then his brothers show up who are literally at his mercy. And what does he do? He shows mercy to them. So this beatitude, I believe, is logically connected to meekness. So just as meekness is a work of God in us, so is mercy. It is a holy compassion. But it also compels us to real action. Um, When trying to give an example of mercy, or really trying to teach this this self-righteous lawyer about what it meant to truly love God and to love his neighbor, Jesus in Luke 10 gives us the story that all the kids grow up learning, the story of the Good Samaritan. And when we get to that, we'll, we'll certainly exposit that passage of Scripture more. But, but when you look at the actions of the Good Samaritan here, he not only sees the man, he goes over and he touches the man. He shows real action, real mercy, and takes care of the man. And you see, there was the, the priest and there was the Levite who had gone before them. And they may have felt bad for the guy. Who knows? They went on the other side of the road because they didn't want to dare touch him and therefore be ceremonially unclean. But they didn't have true mercy. They may have felt bad. So Jesus says at the end of that parable, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And that lawyer who had asked him the question responds in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Mercy isn't about feelings. It isn't just sentimentality or shallow sympathy. It is pity, but it's pity with clothes on, if you will. It's pity dressed for action. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these little, I can't even remember what one of these news magazines, news shows on on television, whether it's primetime or Dateline or they're all pretty much the same, 2020. You know, one of these does a little, these little clips every now and then where they'll, They'll put someone in a situation, maybe a distressful situation, intentionally, and it's an actor, and they want to see how people react. You know, and so they, they, it's called their what would you do segment. And so people walk by or whatever, and, and, um, and occasionally, most of the time, people just sort of ignore the situation, whatever it is, and then there's a variety of different situations they come up with. But sometimes some people do stop and help and, 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 and show some mercy or to someone, but it's always interesting. They always interview every single person, and so they'll ask someone who just saw what was going on and decided to keep on going. They'll, they'll ask them, why didn't you stop and help? And, and this is almost always the response you get, well, I just thought it was none of my business. I, I just thought it was none of my business. Well, that, that's not mercy. Mercy does something. Mercy makes other people's pain and suffering our business. Mercy makes the suffering in the world our business. 
You're not a merciful person just because you were stirred to tears when the infomercial about starving children popped on television. There is nothing supernatural about feeling bad about others. Real mercy takes real action. Mercy is a genuine compassion that is expressed in genuine help, selfless concern expressed in selfless deeds. This is why this should be a this is this should be this mercy should be a trait of the of all kingdom citizens. Why? Because if we are truly kingdom citizens, then we have hungered and thirsted for what? For righteousness. And how do we sum up the concept of righteousness last week? We said it was simply the character of God. The one who hungers and thirsts for the character of God is filled with the character of God. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning as we continue to talk about mercy is this. Mercy is essential to the character of our Heavenly Father. Mercy is essential to the character of our Heavenly Father. The Hebrew word hesed um, is an amazing, almost undefinable word for us in English. We have no word to fully capture its meaning. So sometimes it's translated steadfast love, sometimes loving kindness, other times it's translated as faithfulness, and yes, many times it's translated as the word mercy. Matter of fact, the translators of the Septuagint would use the same Greek word that Jesus uses here for blessed are the merciful when they would translate that hesed into the Greek. This hesed is essential to who God is. This is why our language falls short. How can mere symbols on a piece of paper and sounds coming from our mouth encapsulate the nature of God? That's why it's so hard to define what this is. It's related to, this mercy is related to, but it's distinct from God's grace. It's different than grace in this way. Grace extends pardon, but mercy extends relief. Grace deals with the cancer of sin, whereas mercy deals with the symptoms and the effect of the sin. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. In reality, this, this hesed love of God is a uniquely divine trait Some people have defined it this way. It is God's covenantal love for his people. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But friends, this mercy of God is not at odds with his justice. For that passage where, Mo, where God is revealing himself to Moses goes on to say, God speaking about himself, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Friends, mercy, God's mercy does not contradict his justice. Matter of fact, God's mercy cannot exist without his justice. Man is in misery because of sin. And misery is the just and deserved fruit of his sin. Yet God shows mercy. Thus mercy is made manifest due to sin's existence. Mercy is one of those traits of God for which sin was necessary to see. There are certain traits of the Holy One, of God, of the Almighty, that we could never see if sin had not come into the world. And mercy is one of those. And only God can be fully just and fully merciful. Therefore, mercy in and of itself demands the cross. Mercy demands the cross. Only those who have come under the refuge of Christ, 
who absorbed God's wrath against sin on behalf of his people, only those can truly benefit from the fullness of God's mercy. And I say from the fullness of his mercy because everyone has tasted God's mercy to a certain degree. So I want to break mercy down into three categories here. First of all, there's God's general mercy towards all of his creation. God's general mercy toward all of creation. Psalm 145, 8, which we read earlier in the service, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Adam's sin, which is our sin as well, should have seen the whole world plunge into fiery wrath. But God extends mercy to creation in general. And then there's a special mercy that God gives, not just to his creation in general, but to mankind. As creatures created in his image, there is a special mercy. So there's general mercy, then there's special mercy. Matthew 5, 45. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And this special mercy is so that people might see God and know God. Acts 14, 17. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Every single creature on this earth, every single man, woman, child on this earth has a conscience that tells him that he has violated God's law. He knows that he's out out of covenant with his creator. He knows that he deserves wrath. Yet, God continues to send him rain. continues to give him breath. And what do most people do? They just simply take it for granted and keep on going the way they want to go. And God says here that that special mercy is designed to drive you to your creator. So there's general mercy, there's special mercy, and then there is a covenantal mercy, or as some people put it, a sovereign mercy towards God's elect, towards his children. Exodus thirty three nineteen. he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is sovereign mercy reserved for God's children, those who are Christians, those who have placed their faith in Christ and come under his wings for mercy. Ephesians 2, 4, which I prayed at the beginning of this message But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is a mercy reserved for his children. So there's general mercy, special mercy, and covenantal mercy. And God's mercy is indeed compassion in action, as we read earlier. For our Father didn't just feel bad about us. He acted. He sent his Son. So the next point In our message today is mercy is embodied in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Mercy is essential to the character of our Heavenly Father. It is embodied in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the Son of the living God, is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. Therefore, He is mercy in the flesh. He lived out mercy every single day of his life. And over and over again in the Gospels, we read things like this. In Matthew 14, 14, he says, And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This was our Lord's M.O. This is how he operated. 
He is mercy incarnate. Therefore, he is compassion in action. When he sees need, he acts. He's moved by man's needs in ways we cannot fathom. When we see need, we feel bad. But friends, as bad as you feel, let's say you see a crippled person on the tail. We don't see them sitting outside the stores in America. Rich will tell you how many he saw is more than he can count in India. But we see them on television or whatever it might be. Or maybe just someone who has a life situation. Their house is burned down. Whatever it might be. We feel bad. We can't even begin to get an idea of how Christ feels when he sees people in misery. He's moved by man's needs in ways we cannot fathom. He loves his father perfectly, and therefore he loves his fellow man perfectly. His passion is for his father's glory, and his father's glory drives him to compassion for those created in his father's image. An image tarnished by disease and deformity and destruction and death. So he's moved not only with great pity because of the people that are going through this, he's moved because the image of his father is being tarnished by these terrible things that mankind are going through. But we would woefully undermine our Lord's mercy if we limit it to pity regarding man's physical condition. He came to show us a much deeper level of his Father's mercy, a much more deep and exhaustive level of mercy than any of us could ever have imagined. For to be relieved from one's physical distress and misery is one thing, but to be relieved from our spiritual distress and misery is quite another So our Lord not only met physical needs, we read again where Jesus shows compassion. I'll go to Mark chapter 6, verse 34 this time. When he came ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So he came not only healing, he came teaching. And he came teaching what? He came teaching the gospel. This was his whole reason for condescending into our sin-risen, miserable world. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He is our merciful high priest and he is our faithful helper. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In that mercy of Jesus, friends, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we hunger and thirst for God's character, and we are filled, why and how? We are filled because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and imparted to us. And so, friends, as we look at Jesus' mercy, we see that his mercy becomes our mercy, not only in that it's counted to us as his righteousness is imputed to us, but also, as we mentioned last week, his righteousness is implanted in us. Therefore, his mercy becomes our mercy in a very real and practical way. So my third point this morning is simply this. Mercy is empowered in our lives through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It is essential to the character of our Heavenly Father. It is embodied in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is empowered in our lives through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Let us remember that it is by God's mercy that we've been born anew. We've been made into new creatures, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Titus 3, 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of our Father, of God our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we've been born again to a living hope. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been been poured into us. We're made new by his mercy through the Holy Spirit. And we're made new to show his mercy through the Holy Spirit. We've been made new by the Holy Spirit. And now that Holy Spirit dwells in us and we are to show mercy through the Holy Spirit. New creatures we are, we are vessels of mercy, mercy given to us and now shown through us. Therefore, all true Christians, all who have truly been born again, show mercy, period. There's no coincidence that as Christianity has spread around the globe, the things that follow Christianity, that follow the gospel, are things like hospitals and schools and orphanages. That's because what remains in the wake of someone who is following a gospel path is mercy. And so the person who says they're on a gospel path and has no mercy is totally at odds with the scriptures. Totally at odds with this beatitude. We are made new by his mercy and we are made new in order to show his mercy 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are to be like pipes and not bowls. I think a lot of people look at their Christianity as they're they're like a bowl and they receive the Holy Spirit and they receive God's blessings and they, they just sit there and they stagnate. And they become breeding ground for mosquitoes. We are to be a pipe, not a bowl. As God's mercy is poured into us, it pours out of us onto others. That's how we are to function as Christians. If you have received God's mercy, then you are now inevitably, inevitably a conduit of God's mercy toward others. You may say this, well, I just don't have mercy. You know, I didn't score high on the mercy in the gift inventory test. So I just don't. That's why I don't really, you know, show a lot of mercy because it's just, it didn't come out high on the test thing. So I'm just not a mercy person. I've heard people say, I'm not a mercy person. Well, I agree that acts of mercy, according to Romans 12, 8, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But friends, according to this beatitude and according to the rest of the scriptures, anyone who is genuinely a Christian, anyone who is genuinely a kingdom citizen should be showing mercy. We should expect to see the mercy of God flowing through someone who is a believer. So don't give me your excuse that you scored bad on the gifts inventory and, and your, your highest thing is, I don't know, being angry. I don't know, I don't know what, what, what these different inventories that people have out there. I think they're kind of silly, to be honest with you. I'll talk about that some other time. If you've received God's mercy, you should be a conduit of God's mercy. If indeed the character, the righteousness, if indeed the character of God is being manifest in us, which is what the fourth beatitude says we are to hunger for, then mercy will manifest itself in us. If indeed we are being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. If that's really happening, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
Again, it's the work of the Spirit. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So if we are truly Christians, we are being changed, we're being conformed, we're being conformed to the image of the Son who perfectly, perfectly reflects the character of God. Therefore, mercy is a must. So, just as once to our shame we bore the image of the man of dust, praise God that we now shall also ever increasingly bear the image of the man of heaven. That should be happening in us. So the character of God is an ever-increasing reality in our lives. It must be manifest. Therefore, mercy should be ever-increasingly overflowing out of us towards others. It is a must. It is inevitable for the one who's truly been born again. 1 John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how... Does God's love abide in him? How is that possible? Well, it's a rhetorical question. It's not possible. Matthew 25, we read earlier where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Mercy flows from the man who's truly been shown mercy. It flows from a life of those who are truly Christ followers. And it flows in three ways. Mercy flows out of the believer through his words. So we want to get now practical application. How does mercy flow? Flows through our words. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. So mercy comes out of our words, but mercy flows out of the believer through his works as well. James two fifteen. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now those works and those deeds are first to be shown to those in the church, but also to those outside the church. Galatians 6.10 says that as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. But we are to do good to everyone. Our mercy should flow not only to our brothers and sisters, but to everyone. So Mercy flows out of the believer through words, through works. Mercy flows out of the believer through his witness. Sometimes we're going to be simply like Peter and John outside the temple. And we'll have to say, I have no silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you. And therefore, we must always, in the name of Jesus, give them the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, just as Jesus didn't come solely to relieve physical ills, he came to be the vessel of God's mercy on the cross. So too, our mercy must be much deeper. We must be careful not to cave into the temptation of the social gospel that aims to make men's temporal lives more comfortable but cares little for the eternal state. Friends, I'm telling you, the era we live in with Facebook and everything else, we get tempted to, we get drawn into making it look like we're merciful. Ooh, I like this group because they're feeding orphans. And it pops up on our page. Ooh, ooh, I like that Steve likes that. Ooh, yay. Empty. Empty. We're so tempted to fall into some empty type of gospel or even some social gospel where that's all we're doing is going out and meeting needs, but we're not sharing the gospel. We cannot simply be in the business of making people's journey to hell more comfortable. As one preacher said, we don't put springs on their wagon for their journey to hell. 
We must understand and believe that to truly be merciful means that people must proclaim the gospel. The greatest and most merciful act you can do for a lost soul is to speak the gospel to him or her. Yes, acts of kindness must accompany our words. But if the gospel words are not accompanying our acts of kindness, then they are empty and devoid of ultimate meaning. What meaning? You see, there is no meaning, there is no purpose in meeting someone's physical ills, relieving their physical ills. There's no meaning whatsoever in it if we don't share the gospel. It is totally purposeless. We have to share the gospel. One writer put it this way, As tragic as it is to show no mercy toward those in physical distress, how much more terrible is it to have the riches of the kingdom and not share them with others less fortunate? It is a cold cruelty of the worst sort. It would be better to pass by a suffocating man with a tank of oxygen than to pass by a lost person with the keys to the kingdom and do nothing. So this is how mercy makes itself manifest in us. Through our words, through our work, and through our witness. Through our witness. And so this past week, I think it was Wednesday, was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And I think if there's one area where the church is trying to show mercy, it is in the area of fighting against abortion, to show mercy to the weakest of our society. But we have to be careful. What moves us? Why are we moved? Are we moved because there's just pain and suffering going on, and that's it? We just want to relieve the suffering of these children? Or are we moved by the gospel? that we know the only thing that truly brings healing to these moms that have made that decision is the gospel. And so even as we practice our different mercy ministries here in the areas around us, we should do so with our words, our works, but most importantly, with our witness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They is emphatic in this verse. Those who are merciful, they shall receive mercy. Now, is this verse teaching works? That somehow we earn our mercy? That's not the case. First, let me just say absolutely no. Those who think that this verse teaches some sort of a, a merit, that you earn mercy by being merciful, first of all, they, you, err, you err in three ways if that's what you believe. First of all, you err in the fact that the whole Scripture teaches the exact opposite. Secondly, you err in the fact that we can never be merciful enough to earn God's mercy. So what's the, what's the cutoff, Mark? When, at what point do you become merciful enough to receive God's mercy? Well, if we're honest, none of us are merciful enough. And then the third way it errs is if we earn mercy, then mercy is no longer mercy. It's become merit. You can't earn mercy. So what is Jesus saying here? We have to remember here how it comes about. It originates in us from God. So the logical pattern of the Beatitudes is that we are emptied first and then we are filled. Filled with what? The righteousness of God. We seek and are filled with his righteousness, his character. And the chief manifestation of his character is mercy. So those who have the righteousness of God flowing out of them, those who show God's mercy, are those who can have rock-solid assurance and hold on to the glorious promise that they will receive mercy. Only the Christian who has been emptied of self has turned to God and has been filled with God's very own righteousness. Only that Christian will receive mercy in the end. It's like what we've already said. True believers show mercy, and thus true believers receive mercy. Jesus says something similar, something parallel in Matthew 6, 14, and we'll get to that 
I don't know when we'll get to Matthew 6.14 in a year. Um, Matthew 6.14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And this one comes with a warning, verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, if you do not have the heart of God pulsating through your veins with mercy towards others, with a heart of compassion, willing to forgive, then you may not be forgiven yourself. You might very well be the wicked servant of Matthew 18, who, though he had been offered forgiveness of a debt equivalent to $20 million, he then turned and refused to forgive his fellow slave who owed him a few thousand dollars. And then the master called him back and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers. And that's a very comfortable word the ESV gave us. It actually means torturers. He delivered him over to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Is that not a frightening verse? It's not about works though. It's about the heart. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, if you do not have a heart after God's own heart, meaning a heart that has been made new, a stony heart that's been replaced with a heart of flesh, you cannot forgive as God forgives. You cannot obey Jesus' words from Luke 6 where he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And you have no reason to think you're saved. Nothing proves more clearly that you have been forgiven than your own readiness to forgive. And nothing proves more clearly that you've received mercy than your own readiness to extend mercy. John Wesley had an exchange with... Um, General Oglethorpe, who eventually became the governor of Georgia, when Wesley was doing ministry in Georgia. And Wesley was trying to encourage Oglethorpe to forgive someone who had, who had hurt him, who had hurt Oglethorpe. And Oglethorpe said, I never forget and I never forgive. And Wesley said, well then, sir, I hope you have never sinned. Friend, the more we will be merciful the more we will grow in our understanding of and experience of and enjoyment of God's mercy toward us. God's mercy becomes sweeter and sweeter to us the more and more we become like Christ and thus the more and more merciful we become toward others. Deepening mercifulness should also be a part of our growth and maturity. Jude verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we, we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on his mercy. And that enables us to be people who then show mercy in a variety of different ways. So I want to conclude this morning first with a word to believers. To believers, I want to encourage us to be stirred up by by these passages, let our words be stirred up. Let our works be stirred up. Let our witness be stirred up into mercy. How? Well, we fix our mind on things above and ask God. We beg God. We pray to God to stir up his mercy in us. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him. And then later in, we read about this wisdom in James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy 
and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you hunger and thirst for that? And how do we look? How do we fix our eyes on these things? Well, by reading the scriptures, and of course all scripture points to the one who was mercy incarnate, Jesus Christ our Lord. So see and savor mercy as you see Christ in his word. But secondly, let us stir one another up. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So what we're called to do is to stir one another up to mercy. And finally, a word to you. If you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever. You're one who is standing out in the crowd, listening in as Jesus speaks to the disciples. Friends, you need God's mercy. Don't presume upon God's mercy. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, God wouldn't send me to hell. God wouldn't do that. Oh, friend, the person who says that doesn't know God well enough and doesn't know himself well enough. He doesn't know God's holiness and he doesn't know his own sinfulness. Friends, God must send unrepentant sinners to hell. That's the only way he can still be a good God. Therefore, in light of his justice, you must recognize your rebellion and turn to God for mercy. What must you do to receive God's mercy? Stop looking at yourself. There's nothing you can do to earn God's mercy. Mercy is mercy, not merit. So stop looking at yourself and look to God. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Only the spiritually impoverished with their hand held up to the master, broken and bankrupt, the one who then mourns over his sinful state, turning from that sin and in meekness looks to God, hungering to be right with God, only that man will find mercy. So look to God. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And when you, in your brokenness and repentance, come to God, he gives you what you do not deserve. He gives you grace. And he doesn't give you what you do deserve. He gives you mercy instead of hell. He gives mercy to his enemies. There was a story that came out of the Iraq war a few years back where after a particular fight, some of our Marines had defeated some insurgents, some terrorists, but a couple of the terrorists had survived, and one of them was critically wounded and was bleeding profusely, and he needed a transfusion. And one of our Marines went up and offered to give his own blood, because it was the right blood type, to save this man, his enemy. And when he asked why he did it, he said, he's made in the image of God, and so am I. That was his response. Friends, Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is the testimony of the Christian. But it's, been, it's much better than that even. Not only have we been reconciled to our king, we've also been brought into the king's family. And his abundant covenantal mercy has been given to us. He not only forgives us, he brings us into new existence, into his family, and we become his treasured possession. This is like mercy on steroids. This is holy mercy, spectacular, glorious mercy. 
For we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So friend, this morning, if you're an unbeliever, that can't be said of you. So I beg you to do what Isaiah says in Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Come to God this morning through Jesus Christ, for the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name, and we thank you that on the cross, that holy covenantal mercy was put on full display. But God, us foolish sinners in here can only begin to barely comprehend it. Lord, I pray for every single believer in this room that their understanding of mercy would deepen. And as our understanding of mercy deepens, then I think our compulsion to show mercy will increase. Lord, take us into deeper understandings of mercy. Help us to meditate on your mercy. Help us to meditate on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Help us to meditate on the fact that your word says that mercy and justice kiss one another on the cross. And Lord, if there be any unbelievers here, I pray that they would see that they are at enmity with you. They are enemies of yours. And I pray, Lord, that they would come. They would come and find mercy. Don't let them presume upon your mercy. For your general mercy and even your special mercy toward mankind will come to an end. And only those who are found within your covenantal mercy will live and be blessed forever and ever and ever. So, Father, I pray that you stir up the hearts of those who need to hear who need to respond to the gospel. And for the rest of us, we need to respond too. Who need to respond with better worship. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.